0: Hello, you are listening to Angel Nears, the podcast. Angel Nears is a Silicon Valley community for startup builders where experienced operators join us to share their firsthand knowledge on how to build and scale their startups. I'm your host, Oleg Kujakov, and our guest today is Jay Rudman, CEO of Top Step, a financial technology firm based in Chicago that evaluates day traders' performance in real time simulated accounts. Jay is an experienced and successful leader of five businesses, uh, four of which exited. Jay specializes in scaling businesses, team development, change management, and go-to-market strategies, and is a CEO mentor at the Junto Institute, is where startup leaders grow faster than their companies are growing. Today, we're going to talk about what transforms ordinary people into world-class leaders. And before we get into that, Jay, welcome to the show.
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure.
0: Yeah, excited to talk. Let's get started. We always like to learn about our guests before we get into the meat of the conversation. How did you get your start in tech and entrepreneurship? Well,
1: entrepreneurship to begin with, I didn't know you were supposed to be anything other than an entrepreneur. Um, I mean, we are a byproduct of our surroundings, right? And my dad ran his own business. My stepfather ran his own business. Uh, Later in life, my father-in-law ran his own business. So I just assumed that you ran your own business. So entrepreneurship, I guess, was, you know, as they, uh, as they like to say, in my DNA. In terms of tech, tech is uh, just, it's an interesting, you know, byproduct of timing, right? I uh, graduated from my MBA in 97. And for those business historians, you might remember 97 was the height of you know, that tech bubble. And at the time, we didn't even know it was a bubble because it hadn't burst yet. Um, so coming out of B-School, looking for the next opportunity, a bunch of my friends were doing the consulting gig or the banking gig. And to me, tech seemed really interesting, pretty nascent, um, kind of the Wild West. And I said, let's try it. And that's kind of how that all started.
0: Unpack it a little bit. Like, was uh, your first business in tech, you, you started five companies, right? So yeah, take us through, were they all technology companies or, or what's the story there? I would say they're all tech-enabled. And so
1: this is going to be almost comical if I go all the way back to 97 when I started. Um, I was part of a a founding team, and it was a carve-out of a larger Fortune 500 organization who was saying, hmm, this Internet thing seems like it's going to be here in the future. Let's figure out a tech strategy. And so they brought in me and a few others to come up with that strategy. And I say it's almost comical because now... You wouldn't need what we tried to do, which was essentially, you know, have to build a server room and go spend tens of thousands of dollars on, you know, servers that we had to ensure were elevated and air conditioned. And all those, you know, comical stories that you look back on and say, hmm, today you just spin up AWS in 10 seconds and you're done. But, um, you know, tech strategy back then was generally e-commerce. And so it was trying to take an offline business and bring it online. And that's kind of a pattern through the the first couple of businesses, because the first business was, um, as I said, taking a big business that had no internet strategy, bringing them on and creating a shopping cart. And eventually we sold that business to an organization that eventually became part of the Amazon family. But the next business was very similar in that um, I Uh, connected with a gentleman who had offline patents. And this is, again, going to sound a, um, a bit old fashioned, but he essentially had, imagine like a Nintendo handheld, but this was people metering system. So you would go watch a movie or a commercial and you'd have a, uh a handheld and you would provide your feedback through that handheld like i liked that scene i didn't like that scene i loved that commercial the you know the the character was a, a you know a plus one or a minus one or whatever the handheld um was and we basically took that technology and that those offline patents and brought them online and now everyone that's listening to this has interacted with what we basically built and patented which is a feedback button again Seems tried and true at this point in time. Who doesn't go on a web page and see a, a feedback button? But at the time, this was in the year 2001 through 2007. We were, you know, creating the category; it didn't exist. Webmaster said, "Why do I care what people think about my page?" And now, uh, obviously, voice of customer and voice of you know browser visitor et cetera is is highly uh, needed. So uh, the pattern there between those first two businesses was take you know old world offline um, businesses and try to bring them online and put a positive spin on it.
0: What's your like area of expertise today? What do you spend most of your time doing? Yeah, great question.
1: So today it's changed. So this business top step that I'm in is the first business that I'm not a founder of. And because of that, I don't have to do as much of the product evangelizing. I don't have to come up with a lot of the product roadmap. Instead, what I was really brought in for at Top Step is to be the CEO. And to me, CEO is really about um, helping draft you know, what that vision, mission, and values are for an organization. Being able to communicate that effectively to all constituents, be it them internally, externally, by external, they could be customers, they could be bankers, they could be investors, they could be, you know, M&A opportunities, whatever they might be. Um, So being able to articulate and communicate that very effectively. And then really doing two more things. One is assuring alliance against that vision, mission and values by hiring really good people who understand it, who are rowing in that same you know, direction and are driving their teams towards those same concepts. And then lastly is really just, I mean, we don't have a CFO in our business, but even if we did have a CFO in our business, it would kind of be like capital allocation, deciding where you want to make your bets. Uh, Because you kind of have that, you know, holistic perspective of the business and just continually doubling down on those bets that prove to be winning bets. And so to me, it's about, you know, creating that mission, vision, value and the strategic plan, articulating it effectively, hiring the right team, and then just continually betting where appropriate. Can you tell us
0: like what you, what you're doing at Top Step? What's the elevator pitch for the company? And then maybe more specifically, like what you're asked to do coming in as CEO?
1: Sure, absolutely. So Top Steps is a really interesting business. It's in the trading space. Um, and as I think you said in the lead-in to this, to this podcast, that we really help retail traders perfect their craft. And the way we do that, first of all, trading is super simple. Open up a Robinhood account or open up a TD Ameritrade account, put $10,000 in there and away you go. That's how simple trading is. But to do it well and to make money at it, it's really, really, really hard. And many people, in fact, most people lose money in the market. And so what we try to do at Topstep is slow that process down. And how do we do that? We put people into live market situations, but don't give them real money to lose. It's almost like playing Monopoly to learn how real estate works. So they're playing live markets against live data but they're playing with Monopoly money. And we basically suggest that they follow particular risk parameters. Don't lose this much money in any particular day, or try not to go on tilt, which basically means you know, have the wrong uh, risk reward profile. And we'll provide that guidance. In addition, we'll tell people what winning the game is, we'll provide them a finish line. Just like every game, you need to know how to keep score. And so we'll say, hey, try to make this much money while adhering to these risk parameters that we've already stipulated. And by the way, if you can do all that, there's actually a reward at the end of this rainbow. And the reward there is, is that we take anyone that's in the game and they can adhere to the rules and cross that finish line. We graduate them from the, the game and give them real capital to trade in real markets. So essentially the the trader never has to put their own live capital into the markets. They can do, you play, um, excuse me, trade with
0: top steps money. Yeah, really interesting. So like once you graduate, you can play with top steps money.
1: Yeah, 100%. And that's what people really want. So the two big challenges that we're we're solving with Top Step is, one, is that there is a lack of education for traders. Too often people jump into the markets without truly understanding the nuances of trading. And two is is the lack of capital. Um, And I'm talking about worldwide, not just in the U.S. I mean, we have traders in the Philippines and in Africa and you name it, I think 160 different countries and, at, you know, across the globe, people want more access, especially to U.S. dollars, to be able to trade bigger if they have something that they think is special in terms of how to profit in the markets.
0: Next, let's talk about how you work with startups. I, I believe you, uh, you know, you mentor startup CEOs as part of you know, what you do with the U- Junto Institute. Junto. Junto. Tell us about it. How does that work? Uh, you mentor startup CEOs. Do, do, do these kind of opportunities find you or do you like source them yourself?
1: Yeah, great question. So I, there's many um, wonderful organizations here in Chicago that I work with that kind of the ecosystem for entrepreneurs and trying to help people. It's the Junto Institute. It's 1871. It's Catapult. It's even uh, my alma mater, which is University of Chicago, they have the Polsky Center for Entrepreneurship. So I work with all of those in all sorts of different capacities. And the origin origin story here is, as I mentioned, back in uh, 97, when I wanted to get into uh, the Internet, uh, I went to, and this is going to sound disparaging, and it's not intended to, I went to my career services and basically said, I want to do the Internet. And their jaw dropped because they really didn't know how to support the entrepreneur. Nowadays, they do an amazing job. The, the, the tables have turned completely. But at the time, again, if you weren't didn't want to be a consultant or a banker, they didn't have the support network for you. And so I always remembered that and said, you know, one day I want to be able to give back and help people, you know, lay foundation to, to understand how to, to enter entrepreneurship and how to enter the, the internet world. And so that's why I do give back and I give back as um, as frequently as possible. And typically, what happens is the, these institutions, these uh, you know, these organizations are eager for anyone to give their time. So as soon as you put your as soon as you put your name on their list or raise your hand by any capacity, uh, your email starts to blow up, and so you start to have to uh, understand where. You want to um, provide assistance. What the good matches between those organizations and what you can bring, and so the, filling the pipeline is not a problem. It's really trying to find the right match, and quite often it's not a good match because, you know, either there's not a lot of domain expertise, there's a reticence on the entrepreneur side to actually learn from others. It's kind of like therapy; you have to basically, uh, you know, open yourself up to help, and not everyone's ready for that. Um, and there's probably, you know, a dozen other reasons why it might not be the right fit, but when it's the right fit, it's, it's a wonderful conversation to have.
0: How does the matchmaking work? Like, do you get set up with somebody? Do they find you? What's, how does that work?
1: Yeah, typically it's an inbound email um, from one of the maybe executive directors or head of talents or someone in one of these organizations They say, "I think this individual is a good fit for you, Jay, based upon you know my knowledge of you. What do you think?" So it's usually you know a what do they call that a double blind or double welcome or whatever they you know classify it as. So first they ask me, and then um, and then there's a little bit of a dabble, and it's like dating, right? You want to uh, make sure that there's a right fit and there, there's a commitment. Um, I will say I'm a stickler, like I am not going to go partially in, I'm going to go all in. So what that means is, as someone who wants to work with me in a, you know, pro bono situation, of course, I'm not charging anyone for these, but uh, there's a commitment, there's, you know, scheduled meetings, there's an agenda, there's a format to the conversation, there's follow ups, there's accountability, like there's a commitment here. And if you're not committed to it,
0: that's perfectly acceptable. It just won't work for the way I operate. How, how structured are these? Do you kind of have like a contract or it, it sounds pretty formal, right?
1: It's informally formal or formally informal. I'm not sure which to put in front, but uh, it's, it's not necessarily a contract between me and the, and the individual, maybe between the individual and the organization that is making the introductions. But between me and them, it's really you know an informal, formal agreement. Um, like, here's here's the threshold, here's the commitments that I'm looking for, and, you know, it's really, you know, one strike and you're out, if you ask me. And it's not because my time's any more valuable than anyone else's, but there are plenty of other folks that are um, eager and, and willing to give the time and effort if you're not.
0: How long do you typically, like, spend with these startups, and, and what's kind of the expectation from both sides?
1: Each session,
0: or... Overall, yes, start to finish.
1: Well, I'll give you an example. I always find that uh, specific examples work well. Um, There's one I've been working with for probably three years. We meet on a quarterly basis. It's an hour each quarter. In advance of each of the meetings, uh, this individual sends me um, a deck. And the deck is the follow-up from our prior conversation for accountability's sake. And then kind of a brief business update. There's no fiduciary obligation. You know, I don't have any commitment towards these businesses. So it's just nice to know if they're growing or if they're not growing because that gives you kind of a, uh, a frame to, to, to view the conversation through. And then kind of what the agenda for the conversation is for that next hour that's coming up. And I asked for these kinds of uh, this deck, you know, a couple of days in advance, so I have some time to peruse it. Once we get into that conversation, it might you know move in a, in a few different directions based upon it, but we generally stay, stay true to the agenda. And at the end of the, the conversation, we each give feedback to the other as to how, you know did this meet expectation? What could have been bet, done better? Are there any open questions, et cetera? And we schedule the next conversation. So it's pretty routine. It sounds almost robotic, but it works really well.
0: What are some of the more challenging parts uh, you've experienced like working with startups?
1: <laughs> I only giggle because it's always the same across all these, uh, startups. It's really the hard conversations. It's the hard conversations that typically the individual I'm working with is a founder, that the founder has to have with a teammate. And typically it is, you know, as these organizations are typically relatively small and early in their, in their life cycle. Uh, That conversation is often with someone that has a close relationship with. Um, So it could be a co-founder. It could be a friend that they brought in. It could be an investor, you a seed investor that they've known for a long time, whatever it might be. It's those hard conversations. And I will say 100% of the time, the um, mentee that I'm speaking with knows they need to have that hard conversation. They either don't know how to or they're avoiding it. And so it's just wonderful to, you know, kind of role play it, provide some shared experience, maybe some advice, some, maybe some mistakes that I've made along the way. And hopefully they feel a lot more comfortable to eventually have that. But unanimously, it's the hard conversations. Yeah, it's very rarely it's about, you know, they're 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 knowledgeable about their business they're not coming to me about how to increase their gross margin or you know what percent should they spend on paid advertising that's not going to leverage my strengths my strengths are really how to scale a business and scaling businesses require um a real understanding of the people in your business the processes in your business because those are the two things that are going to enable scale to happen and so those are the hard conversations, like, how do we change our process and how do we get the most out of the people we have?
0: All right. Well, clearly, you know, you've been doing this for a long time. Let's talk about, you know, what it takes to be a top performing CEO. Innocent little question to start with. What behaviors transform like an ordinary person into a world-class leader? You don't-
1: I would say emotional intelligence is one of the leading behaviors. I don't know if you or your listeners know a lot about emotional intelligence. There's tons of papers and books that are written out of there, but the two underpinnings of uh, emotional intelligence that I lean into quite frequently, there's many more, but the two that I lean into most frequently are self-awareness. So you have to know um, about yourself, where your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what you tend to lean into um, in times of stress, what things you tend to avoid. Um, because we all have those tendencies. So self-awareness. And then the second piece of emotional intelligence that I often lean into is empathy. So you have to appreciate what the individual on the other side of the table is thinking, feeling, um, experiencing, etc. And 10 out of 10 times, your belief systems about the individual on the other side are incorrect. So you really have to ask the questions like, you know, tell me what you're thinking right now, tell me what you're feeling, you know, tell me your concerns, what are you afraid of? What are you excited about? Like, you really have to probe and ask tons of questions. And I'm sure that's pretty consistent with any and every CEO out there, you quickly learn that questions are infinitely more valuable than, uh, than answers. Um, So I think the emotional intelligence is probably the foundation for all CEO speak. The, the other thing is, is like you really have to know your business. And I know that sounds super simple or super obvious, but when you ask folks, you can use like Lean Canvas for this, you can use Flywheel for this, you can use all sorts of different frameworks for this, but you really have to know the three, four, five things, probably no more than five things that really makes your business hum. And it's those things like the, the underpinnings of your business is so critical and so essential because if you don't know those and you don't lean into those frequently then you're going to go astray
0: that's really interesting i'm hearing some consistency across answers right the emotional intelligence answer sounded a lot like what are the most frequent problems these ceos run into what uh what business was it you've you've started five right when when did you kind of realize this as a as a ceo that uh dealing with people for dealing with people was kind of the majority of the challenge or big part of the
1: challenge? 100%. Great question. So it's probably a thread through all of my businesses, but one in particular I'll share. So I started a business that was in the direct selling space. So just to um, clarify what that is, some people call it, you know, MLM or multi-level marketing. Some people call it party businesses. It's essentially like Tupperware, or Avon or Pamper Chef. It's the ability for individuals to sell product through at home, you know, parties and displays to friends and family members. I was not a distributor of it. I actually started the business. So just to clarify, it wasn't like, you know, someone else already had the product. And the product that I did was personalized products. So at the time, Amazon and Walmart and everyone else was winning the, the internet business. And I said, Hmm, how do I compete against them in a scalable business? And they could sell Amazons and Walmarts could sell one-to-one all day long or, you know, one-to-many all day long. But to sell customized products, they were incapable of doing it. They've done a lot better job of it since then. This was in 2008, 2009 timeframe, so a bit ago. And so I was able to take blank stock, customize it on demand by putting name on it, font on it, color, you name it, and drop ship it immediately to the end customer. Um, and I could do that through uh, a party process. I had 600 of these various reps in 41 different states selling my products. And you can imagine that I had never met any of these 600 and how quickly things can go awry if you don't have the ability to connect interpersonally, culturally, foundationally with these 600 reps that are out there. And what I mean by that is you have to keep them tethered to the mothership somehow. And that tethering can be through the vision, mission, values, that tethering can be through training, that tethering can be through rewards and incentives. Like you can do it all sorts of different ways. But I, through School of Hard Knocks, learned tons of mistakes and through tons of mistakes, uh, learned how to really focus in on people to enable the business to grow it's totally different in you know the pre-covid world when you had your you know 250 employees show up all day and you could you know through uh you know what they call that sneaker management walk around and talk to folks and see what was going on i feel like in the post-covid world where we're all remote or most of us are remote it also stresses us in all sorts of different ways and One of the stressors is we have to figure out how to lead and guide and manage remotely without being able to walk up to someone and say hello. And so I feel like, you know, I've learned that in in that direct selling business. And now I'm relearning it in this, you know, COVID world.
0: That's really interesting. And actually what I want to do next is kind of go through a few few, uh, CEO behaviors, best practices, rules of thumb. Let's start with number one. Decide. Speed over precision. Successful CEOs stand out by making decisions with speed and conviction. What practical advice can you give to first-time CEOs about making decisions?
1: Antiquated. Next. No. Data collection is a lot harder when we're in a
0: remote environment.
1: I think it was really easy to say, okay, quick decision. Let's all huddle together, meet in the conference room at two o'clock. Let's, you know, I need uh, supports feedback, I need products feedback, I need sales and marketing, let's get it all the data in and let's make a quick decision. That is nearly impossible. I don't care if you're on Slack or Teams or Microsoft Office or wherever you are, Like it's so much harder to collect data from your team. Um, and so now everything's scheduled. And so you put time on the calendar and the first available time is, you know, um, either tomorrow's stand up if you're lucky, or it's you know, a week from Thursday if you're lucky. So I think speed is really hard in this uh, COVID world. Not impossible, just much. it's much more intentional. You have to be a lot uh, more, I don't know, scheduled about it. So I don't know if speed wins in this game. I really think execution wins um, because I, I've always believed execution wins, but even more so now.
0: Talk about the importance of triaging decisions. Yeah,
1: big believer. Um, empowerment is a value, a top step. Um, I'm a big believer in it. I'm a big believer in it for a number of reasons. One is you're going to get a better result because the individual that you're empowering is largely closer to the information than you are, and it's probably more nuanced in understanding what the problem is. Um, and secondly, is it's going to retain individuals. Um, we know how hard keeping people during this mass resignation that's out there right now. It's impossible. And the reason people stay is they want to be part of a winning team. They believe in the vision and mission, but they also want to continue to grow professionally and empowerment enables them to do so because you're, they're constantly climbing the next rung of the ladder uh, because you're giving them the space to do so. So I think you get a better outcome and I think you basically retain your, your best
0: employees. How about postmortems? Is looking back on past decisions a valuable exercise? One hundred percent. We do that with great regularity at Top Step. Um, I
1: know that it's part of the agile um, process and our tech and product team do it, but we basically have taken the idea and spread it across the organization. So it's not just sitting within the the agile world. Um, Our marketing team also works in sprints. I don't know how many other organizations has marketing team sprints, but we do and they do retros at the end of every single one of their sprints. And then even at the leadership team, we do two large retros amongst the senior leaders, uh, as I said, twice a year, um, looking back at the previous six months and start talk about what uh, we need to do better at, what we need to continue to do, and what we need to stop doing. So we do a start-stop-continue methodology. Um, and I think it's so opening, or eye-opening, excuse me, and we actually keep a list of them uh, so we're always reverting back to what did we say in 2019? What did we say in 2020? So we're not recreating the same mistakes over and over and over again.
0: Okay, let's move to uh, kind of the next advice or philosophy. It's it, it's engage for impact. And this kind of relates to you know the emotional intelligence piece that you said is required for CEOs. CEOs have to be masters of relationships and influence in those relationships. They work with You know, lots of stakeholders, including customers, employees, investors, their board, and other co-founders. How do the top CEOs like orchestrate their relationships with these stakeholders to kind of drive results?
1: There are so many different ways to approach this question. I'll try to uh, keep it relatively simple. But what I what I try to do is try to provide clarity of uh, communication. Um, So. Independent of who I'm speaking to, I have to have consistency of message. So with my team, with my board, be it advisory board or board of directors or whatever else it might be, with my bankers, wh- whomever it might be, I need to be consistent. And the way I am consistent in it is that I have my strategic plan, which is my three to five year plan. I have my operating plan, which is my one year plan. And then nested within the operating plan are my company priorities and my key results. So the company priorities are the SMART goals that I'm trying to drive towards. And by SMART, you know, specific, measurable, actionable, et cetera. And the key results are the outcomes of those, the metrics that will flow out of the company priorities. And I think about that framework or that paradigm all the time when I'm talking to whomever I'm talking to so I can stay consistent. So when my board asks me about why or what or how I can bake it back into, well, if you recall, our company priority for this year is the following and we are measuring it in this way and we are tracking towards that as seen in this graph. And that conversation is exactly the same with my team. And that conversation is exactly the same with, you know, a prospective candidate, whatever it might be. And so, you know, too many stories causes too much confusion, which causes you to spin uncontrollably and lose, you know, the audience. So if I can stay consistent to what I know and what I've already communicated, regardless of the audience, um, it seems to work pretty effectively.
0: Do you do anything else uh, when it comes to like being reliable and consistent? Like what, what kind of... Uh... What kind of behaviors do you do to, to kind of maintain those?
1: uh... Yeah. Well, to me, it's all about modeling appropriate behavior because everyone in the organization is looking at everything you do, you are in a fishbowl. And to some people that terrifies them. And to me, it energizes me. And what I mean by that is, is I know that if I do things well, it will, you know, waterfall and permeate throughout the business. And so, yes, you're always on, but yes, you always have the ability to drive the business towards, you know, um, better outcomes by always being on. Um, And again, I find that invigorating because I, you know, I try to show up in meetings at time. I try to create agendas. I try to follow up and hold people accountable. I try to hold my weekly uh, one-on-ones. I try to hold my monthly one-on-ones. I try to follow the formats associated with both of those. I try to use the same language that you know I'm speaking over and over and over again, so that language um, permeates. I believe culture is the foundation from which you know the foundation on which all business is built on, and foundation is that mission and vision that I spoke of earlier. But it's basically the values, the language, and those behaviors, and that behavior, that modeling is so important because that's how humans learn. I mean, when you're a newborn, the only way you learn is not from your, um, you know, your mom and dad, uh, you know, beating facts into your head. You're watching and you're learning, and that's how you learn as a child, and that's how you learn as an adult. So, um, short answer is modeling is critical, and you got to do it as the leader of the organization.
0: Can you talk more about what makes a great culture in a company?
1: Yeah, I think culture is based upon, you know, as I said, values, language, behaviors. Like, I think if you do all three of those things, you will get a culture. Will it be a great culture? I hope so, but it will definitely be a culture that everyone kind of abides by. Um, and that's what you're really looking for. You know. You have too many teammates doing too many things all the time for you to watch. And I'm not suggesting you should micromanage. and I'm not even suggesting that there are rogue employees out there. But culture is what keeps people tethered to the business. And if you can basically say, hey, you know what? This is how we operate. This is our OS. This is our values. This is you know the lens we look at life and our business through. And this is the language we use. Um, I mean, I'm not speaking about, you know, French versus English. I'm talking about, you know, uh, we use company priorities. We use key results. We talk about operating plans. We talk about on track, off track. We talk about, you know, whatever language you use, is, it's, it's consistent. People start to understand what you're driving towards. And then, you know, those behaviors that I already spoke of.
0: I'm wondering, what do you do when you're kind of outside of your comfort zone? tech startups, they, they need CEOs who can adapt. What do you do when you find yourself in like uncharted waters that are uh, beyond the boundaries of your own knowledge or competencies?
1: Right, I hope I'm doing that every day, right? I hope I'm challenging myself every day because that's really how you professionally and personally grow and the business will grow. The way I do it is, you know, I really try to work with a large network Mostly in Chicago, but kind of across the the country, and that can be everyone from formal advisory board that I have at Top Step, and my advisory board is they're superheroes. They basically come armed with years and years and years of ex, you know business experience and domain knowledge. So I have someone who's a trader. I have someone who's a seasoned executive. I have a technologist. I have a financier. I have a marketing individual like. That I can lean into them whenever I have a specific question that I am uncomfortable answering because I just don't have the experience or um, you know depth of expertise that they do. And then the second thing is is that you know I have a um, whole network of like-minded or maybe even unlike-minded individuals here in Chicago that I lean into. I have a group that I meet with on a monthly basis, kind of like a, a YPO or EO format. And we bring our challenges to those conversations. I have many others on, a, on that, uh, you know, contact list that I'll reach out to. I've even tried breakfast, folks. It's a little harder in the COVID world, but it's like, you know what? I haven't talked to you in a while. I got this problem. Can we meet for breakfast? And if you buy someone breakfast, it's remarkable how frequently people show up and they basically know that for the next 60 minutes, you know, we have each other's undivided attention. I find that to be a very effective. I I find people are typically sharper in the morning than you know doing drinks in the evening. Drinks typically um, degenerate into something else, and I just find breakfast to be a very effective uh, way to kind of tap into other
0: people's knowledge. So, as a CEO, you know you have all this information coming at you, right? You're managing different teams; they all have their own unique, you know, problems and uh, things they're working on. So, I imagine it's it's tough to kind of keep track of everything when, you're, when, you're, when you have everything to keep track of. A wealth of information creates a poverty of attention. How do you handle like the cognitive overload of running a business and basically being responsible for more than you can understand?
1: Right. I think the first thing, and it's a great question because it happens to all of us. I think the first thing is you have to get over the misconception, probably in your own mind, that you have to know it all. I think when you have the belief system that you need to know and be an expert in all parts of your business, that causes you um, to be you know overloaded and basic, basically be <laughs> what do they say a jack of all- trades and master of none. like that, that's, that's not really helpful. So I think you got to get over that own internal bias that you might have that you need to know the answers to everything. That's first point. Second point is, and I think I hinted at this before, is you really need to know the four or five levers in your business that are the absolute must cogs that make things work, um, and you need to know those intimately. But the rest of it is, you know, more ancillary. And so if something comes up that's uh, um, related to one of those four or five, you know, core pieces, then yes, you need to dive in there and learn it and understand it and figure out, you know, problem identification, et cetera. But if it's all those things on the outside,
0: it's so easy to just give it to someone else to try to solve that problem because it's just not core. Let's talk about navigating the challenges and some of the hazards of the CEO role, something i I'm sure you've probably encountered what do you do when you get signs like coming from a level or two down that one of your critical people either isn't up to the job or is thinking about you know contemplating leaving everyone
1: faces this all the time people are always thinking about leaving and I don't say that because you don't try to create a a great business it's just the reality of the world these days and so you have to manage the risk as a ceo and what i mean by that is is you have to think about your single points of failure and ensure that they are no longer a single point of failure and you do that through all sorts of knowledge bases or wikis or job shadowing or whatever you do uh, within your organization whatever tactic you take to try to solve that but you definitely have to ensure that there's no single point of failure because you don't want that key individual walking out the door and your business grinding to a halt because all the knowledge just left the business. So that's kind of the risk management side of it. In terms of the individual, like the one on ones, I think those are just conversations you need to have. And you can basically decide very quickly in those conversations does the person really have the skills that are necessary to be successful? Are they engaged in the business itself? And are they coachable? And so, if they don't have the skills, then bad hire, and you're going to have to train them up, or decide that you know you're going to have to go find a different job for them that they do have the skills for. If they're not engaged, then you need to have that you know real raw conversation around um, why is there not you know a connection between who you are and what the business is trying to solve. And then, if they're coachable, then shame on you if you're not coaching them to get the most out of them. If they're not coachable. If they're not engaged, if they don't have the skills, then uh, essentially you have to say goodbye to them. And, you know, I think I have found through all my experiences that when you have to say goodbye to someone because of those various reasons, they're just as happy to leave as you are to say goodbye to them. Like they know this is not the right place for them.
0: Let's talk about another challenge, which is hiring. What are some safe bets that people make that that maybe aren't safe?
1: If you have not done so, you should go out there and read all sorts of articles about unconscious bias. There's a trillion of them. Uh, There's a trillion of articles and there's a trillion of unconscious biases. So you should certainly try to make your hiring process as objective as possible. We've done that by having multiple people in interviews. So it's never just a one-on-one, it's at least two uh, top-steppers in every interview. We've created a scorecard Um, So it's not just objective. We have a um, list of questions that is asked of all candidates that are, you know, not unique to that specific role. So we can compare and contrast like you have to try to make it as objective as possible because otherwise you're going to have all sorts of affinity biases and confirmation biases and you name it and you don't even realize it, but we're all human and it's out there. Um, So I think the, the safe bet is to try to make it as a, Objective as possible, um, because otherwise you're gonna you're gonna make some uh,
0: subconscious mistakes, and and we're all prone to it. And what kind of factors should you consider when you're building a, a strong team? You want a strong team, right? So so what what are you looking at? What factors are you looking at?
1: Right, you have to look at the skill side, and you have to make sure that they the right competencies. Most certainly, you have to look at. You know, I hate this concept of fit. Like, that's a horrible concept to me. Like, oh, they're a cultural fit or they're a company fit. We're not looking for fit. We're looking for enhancement. So can this person come in and actually elevate the, the team and the role? Um, so it's it's not just, you know, um, you know, here's a square peg in a square hole. It's like, can you bring the whole thing up? So it's competencies, it's enhancement. And then lastly, I will look for, you know, personally, when I'm involved in the hiring process, I look for kind of complementariness. And by that, I mean, I don't want a ton of groupthink here. I want someone who can look at the opposite side, um, bring a different perspective. Can counterweight or counterbalance a you know a strong voice that I already know exists on the team. So I'm looking at it very holistically to see if this individual um, provides that you know complementary nature.
0: Let's move to the closing question. You know I tend to see different skill sets and strengths for those people running uh, an early stage startup and those who are running more uh, a more mature IPO ready company often it's the case that the person who starts the company is not the right person to scale it or take it public. What do you think about the changing leadership requirements that do they exist like as a startup kind of scales from a seed stage to a more mature company?
1: 100 percent. you have to remember i am not the founder of top step and kudos to the founder of top step to bring me in to understand that i enjoy and i'm good at scaling and he was good at and enjoys founding founding businesses and so i definitely believe that and i will one day hand off the reins of top step to someone else who uh, enjoys taking it from wherever i've taken it to that next level um i know where i'm energized I know what i'm good at it's all part of that self-awareness that i mentioned as part of emotional intelligence and i think um more ceos more leaders should know uh you know to what point can they flex and then, at what point are they way over their skis? And it's okay to be over your skis. It's part of being a high achiever. It's okay to you know try new things and experiment. But at the same time, if it doesn't energize you, if it doesn't bring happiness, if it's not propelling the organization to the next level, then you need to look elsewhere and find someone who's a better fit, given that you know
0: stage spec- specificity of the business before we get out of here, what's the best way for our listeners to reach you and, uh, and learn more about Top Step?
1: Top Step is easy. It's topstep.com. From there, you'll be able to find any and all information about how to become a better trader or learn the, the mechanics of trading should you wish to get into it. In terms of me specifically, you can find me on LinkedIn. It's Jay Rudman, so J-A-Y-R-U-D-M-A-N.
0: And uh, you're welcome to connect with me through that channel. All right. Well, expect a LinkedIn uh, connection coming from me. And uh, yeah, if you're listening and you liked our show, please subscribe um, wherever you get these podcasts and leave us a rating. Jay, thank you for joining the show today. We appreciate your time and your insights, and we really loved having you. Wonderful. Thanks for having me.